All right, so we're back in this series. Uh, before I get into it, let's pray. Lord, we, uh, thank, we are thankful, Lord. Um, you have just made yourself uh, visible and apparent in our lives in so many ways. Um, and God, today, as we uh, have this week of the 4th of July, as we reflect on the freedom that we get to live in as a nation, we pray, Lord, that we would use that freedom well. Uh, we would use it in ways that glorify you, Lord. Um, you have blessed us with this opportunity to be here today, to be in this place that we call home. And Lord, may you work in us and through us to proclaim a freedom that will outlast this freedom, and that is the freedom of knowing Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. So Lord, today, would you um, work some of that freedom in our hearts? Would you work some of your truth from your word into our hearts, into our minds, um, in a way that will transform us in how we live? And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So we're in this Resurrected Church series for a few more weeks, um, and the point of this series, again, is that we as a congregation, people, yes, but also as the body of Christ, that we would live into the life of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that we wouldn't live as if Jesus was still in the tomb, that we wouldn't live as if that was just some historical event that has no direct effect on our lives, because the life of the resurrection of Jesus has every, everything to do with our lives. If Jesus is the head of the body and we are the parts of the body, that means the life of the head is going to affect the lives of the people in the body and in the church. Um, and we don't want to be a sleepy church. We don't want to be a tired church. We don't want to be a church that is walking around like a corpse on our feet. We want to be alive and passionate, and we want to know Jesus Christ and the will that he has for us and the vision that he is leading us into as a congregation. And so uh, today, this, this conversation, this two-week, you know, Allison said it would be two weeks, uh, when my outline got to page 12 or 13, I gave up trying to make it shorter, and I made it longer and just made it two sermons. Um, so we're going to hear part one this week, standing on God's word and the importance of that. Um, this is a little bit of a throwback to the old, the new, and the you, a series that we did um, earlier this year. We talked about how the old and new testaments are very much relevant to our lives today. It's not just an old book. It is living and breathing. It is meant to be read and thought about and meditated on and consumed. And the Bible speaks much into the problems and the challenges that we face in our world and in our culture today. You'd be surprised how much the scriptures relate directly to the times that we are in today. And much of our ability to know God's truth is tied to our familiarity with God's word and the importance of God's word in our lives. So today we're going to look at that foundation of scripture again. We're going to do so uh, in Jesus' own experience through the temptation story in Luke chapter 4 that we just heard. And then next week, we're going to latch on to a little bit of that Luke 4 story, and we're going to talk about how the scriptures um, can be twisted or quoted out of context or misapplied to situations here or there that they maybe were not intended to be applied toward because you'll find that even the devil himself in Luke chapter 4 quotes scripture verbatim, but he does so to try to deceive. And the same thing is apparent and it's relevant in our lives. The enemy can do the same thing for us, which is why we should be aware of it. And we're going to look at some examples next week uh, of thoughts or ideas or scriptures that have actually been twisted uh, in ways that many of us believe is truth, but they might not necessarily be applied that way if we're being true to God's heart and God's word. Uh, the truth is here that God's word, God's word is never going to be void of power to transform us. It's never going to be without the power to change and transform your life, my life, and the life of us as a congregation. Hebrews 4.12 that you heard Dion read says, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, 
It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And so now we, ap- we approach this topic, this worldview of scriptures and their value, we approach this with the faith that God is going to use the scriptures to work through the Holy Spirit to bring you and me and us together into a deeper understanding of God's love, his grace, and his truth. And so that's why we do this repeatedly. We need these reminders repeatedly of the value of God's word, and we want our passion for God's word to grow as well. And so let's jump into this Luke 4 gospel passage. This is going to be on page 1,595 in your Blue Pew Bible. I invite you to pull it out since we're going to spend the next 10 or 15 minutes or so directly in this Luke 4 text. Now this Luke passage, Jesus is baptized and then he is led by the Holy Spirit. That gives you a context for everything that is happening here. Um, The Holy Spirit will not tempt you, but the Holy Spirit may lead you to places where you are tested, right? And so... God is leading through the Holy Spirit. He's leading Jesus into the wilderness. And this text for us today gets super practical, very, very practical, uh, because Jesus is setting an example by which we can learn from. And he didn't do this just for his own accord. I believe Jesus was out there alone, yes, but apparently at some point he told his disciples what had happened, exactly what had happened. And so somebody went and they did their homework and they researched it and they heard these words and they wrote them down so that we can learn from this testimony today and what happened with Jesus in the wilderness. So starting chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days And at the end of them, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. Now the first temptation here is with food, right? Material things, really practical. Uh, Jesus was hungry, and I don't know if you know, but if you didn't eat for 40 days, do you think you'd be hungry too? I think you might be hungry, or you might be beyond hunger, right? Now, uh, often we look at the spiritual discipline of fasting, uh, and we think of this story in Luke, and we think, wow, that is intimidating. I can't do that. Um, But just on a side note today, fasting doesn't have to be intimidating. It's all over the scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament. Jesus assumes that his followers are going to fast at some point for some reason. And so I encourage you, try fasting. Try it for a meal or a snack. Try it Uh, Instead of using that time to prepare a meal and eat it, just sit down with God's word in prayer. Just try it out, maybe just once a week. Try fasting. It doesn't have to be a spiritually intimidating thing. Um, And the Bible tells that fasting can produce fruit in our own faith and in the lives of those that we're praying for. Now here, Jesus has done something intense and extreme. I wouldn't suggest you start fasting with a 40-day fast just to be more like Jesus. I think you'd need to work up to that a little bit. But he's doing something extreme. He probably had water, which is why he's not being tempted with water. And we know that we can't live 40 days without water in the human body, right? But Satan didn't tempt him with water, so we assume that need was taken care of. Here the enemy appeals to the most basic physical need that Jesus has in his flesh at that moment, and that is hunger. And the temptation here is that Jesus would lay down this fast that the Holy Spirit led him to do in the desert, in the wilderness, And that he would exercise his authority as the son of God to turn something into food. You know, the charge here is, if you are the son of God, do this. He's being tested, right, by the devil. 
And the temptation is that he would use that authority in a way that is possibly inconsistent with what God would have him do, right? The temptation is that he would take matters into his own hands rather than be obedient to God and the fast that God had led him on. The temptation is that he would take the easy way out. He would take the easy way out and eat because he has the power to do that. We see later in the scriptures, he can turn water into wine and he can make a few loaves and fish feed thousands. So turning a stone into bread, absolutely, Jesus could do that. We believe that he could. It wouldn't, again, it wouldn't have been a valid temptation if he didn't have the power to do that, right? So Jesus withstands this temptation. He responds with scripture, and the devil continues with the next one. Verse 5, the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of this world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So here's the second temptation. The second temptation is power, right? It's power. And that power comes with worshiping the devil. That power comes with worshiping the devil. Just worship me, says the enemy, and you will have the whole world as a footstool. All you have to do is say that I'm better than you, that I'm more worthy than you. All you have to do is bow down to me. Now, um, I think we're, di- we're living in a day and in an age where this is really a temptation that people fall into. And I don't know um, that people necessarily know that that's what they're doing. But on my more skeptical days, I look at the world, I look at the news, I look at the political and the power systems that we live in, and all I can see is corruption and power grabbing and controlling others for the sake of more, more, more. And in order to work your way into those broken systems, you have to give your allegiance to those above you, right? You have to give your allegiance to those above you. You have to swear something to them that you are of some use to them if you are going to have power within that system, This is the temptation here. And um, that sort of temptation, um, in in one way, happens very subtly, and we're living in a time in our culture where it's also becoming mainstream, where there are Satanists worshiping on TV, on primetime, and we say that's entertainment, but they don't think it's entertainment. Uh, So we need to be aware of this. It's becoming more mainstream to, to literally worship the devil in our culture today. This is the temptation here, and it's interesting here If the devil didn't have the authority to offer the power, it wouldn't have been a temptation. So we see in scriptures here that the devil has some sort of authority over the kingdoms and the ways and the culture in this world because that authority has been given or allowed by God. And we see evidence again of that all over the place in our world today. But make no mistake, the devil is a deceiver. That's the word that you see in the scriptures. He's a liar. And even the power that he does have is going to end. It's got an expiration date. One of the good things about God's word and knowing it well is that we read about that expiration date and we know that the devil's time is numbered. In this case, though, this wasn't a bluff. He had the power to give if Jesus were to only lay down and worship him. Scriptures tell us that the enemy does have that power, but it is a power that will not withstand God's supremacy, God's love, and God's grace, which is eternal. So Jesus responds again with Scripture, and he moves on. The devil has one more temptation for him. Verse 9, the devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, 
He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift up, they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this temptation, he left him until an opportune time. So this third temptation here on the surface, I'm like, oh, it's like security, it's safety, it's deliverance. If I'm in danger, God will rescue me. Uh, But digging deeper, this temptation here is not that. This temptation, again, is for Jesus to exercise authority over the Father's authority, to exercise authority in a way that is inconsistent with God's will for him. Now, Satan here, like I mentioned earlier, he quotes scripture. He knows scripture. And he will use it to deceive and to take out of context and misdirect us. And he quotes Psalm 91, 11, and 12, verbatim. Here's what Psalm 91 and 11 through 12 says. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. It's exactly what we heard in the Luke text. But here the devil is twisting that scripture. He's twisting it. He's tempting Jesus to force God's hand to save him from a self-inflicted decision. In other words, I'm going to choose to jump off this temple and I'm going to put my body in mortal danger and force God's hand to save me. But Jesus knows here that The father is not to be tested or coerced or usurped in this way. And he responds with scripture and Satan leaves him alone. Now in this passage, these three temptations, he's tempted by food, which is the physical or the material provision. He's tempted by power, the one that Satan has the authority to give, it seems. And he's tempted to force God's hand to test God and exercise authority in a way that was not in line with God's heart or God's will for him. And in all three of these, Jesus responds with scriptures. And I want to go a little deeper into what he responds with. First, Deuteronomy 8.3. When he's confronted with the temptation to turn this stone into bread, he responds with Deuteronomy 8.3. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Again, Jesus is a rabbi, a Jewish rabbi, which means he knows his Old Testament, and it is serving him well right now. He knows God's truth that has been planted in his heart and in his mind. And second, When he is tempted with power, Exodus 23, he quotes, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me on the front end of the Ten Commandments. You're familiar with that one. And then on the third temptation, he quotes Deuteronomy 6, 16. Do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did in Massah. Now, Massah is mentioned in this text. What is Massah? This is the place in Exodus, if you remember the Exodus story. They're out in the wilderness, and people are complaining about the lack of water. Uh, There's a few different times where they just wish they could go back to slavery, uh, which we think is crazy, but that's how much they complained, right? And they're complaining about the lack of water, and they tested God. And so Moses takes his staff, he strikes the rock, and water flows out of it, right? That is the place of Massah. The problem is that Moses was not acting according to God's will in that time, and so there were consequences for this in Moses' life because it was not God's will for him to act and use that power that he had been given in that way. And so here Jesus is saying, it would not be God's will for me to cast myself off just so that he could save me with angels. I'm not going to test God here like Moses did there. It's not how I should live my life to honor and glorify the Father, which is why Jesus came. So why is it important? Why is it important that we recognize that Jesus knows the scriptures. 
Because you can't respond with something you don't know. You can't respond with something you don't know. How many of you ever watched C-SPAN or some of these video excerpts from all of these uh, tribunal-type things on Capitol Hill in our nation's country? How many times do people respond with, I don't know the answer to that. I don't know the answer to that. I don't know the answer to that. I, and I know they don't want to incriminate themselves, but you cannot respond to something you don't know with something you don't know. And it is important that Jesus knows the Scripture it is his foundation as the Son of God, as the Messiah, as he is leading his disciples. It is important that he knows this and has it as a foundation because the, the scriptures are the foundation for following God and for withstanding temptation here on earth, and not just for Jesus. Any good God-honoring rabbi in that time would have had the same goals here, to know God's law so that they can follow it, teach it, and cause others to follow it as well. And Jesus is modeling this, not because it is something that only he can do, right? He isn't showing us this because only he can do it. He's, it teaches and it implores his followers to do likewise. Remember, being the, the disciple of a rabbi meant that you were supposed to have faith instilled that changed how you acted and changed how you lived, and it is the same thing for us today. His disciples needed to know the benefit of God's word, and we need to know God's word if it is going to benefit our lives. His disciples needed to know that God's word and what it says uh, was good, and we need to know it too if we're going to live according to it. And when the, the devil comes and he tempts us with certain things in our lives, we cannot respond with the scriptures if we don't know the scriptures. Now, two weeks ago, um, when we talked about sacrifice, I mentioned that I feel like we might be tempted not to read God's word because we know that it might change us or it might hold us accountable as our Hebrews text talks about. It reads our thoughts and our intentions. So tying to this, our own susceptibility to temptation here in this life, in this world, our own susceptibility to being tempted and following after other idols or things that are not God is directly related to our choice not to make God's word important in our lives. Let me say that again. Our own susceptibility to, to chase and follow after idols and give in to temptation, it is directly related to our choice not to make God's word important and central in our lives. How can we expect to combat the lies of the evil one if we don't know God's truth? If we don't even know what the truth is. And so here again, I encourage you, I implore you, I plead with you, get into God's word. If we are not a church, as Emmanuel, if we are not a church that values and knows God's word, or, or if we're not a church that's going to build our foundation on God's word, if we're going to build our foundation on something else, uh, there's only two paths that we can really go down as a congregation. And there's case studies all over the country today that can show these playing out, right? The first path is that if this isn't our foundation, we will cease to become a church and we'll be masquerading as a church, but we'll really be something else. If this isn't our foundation, then Jesus isn't our head, which makes us not the body of Christ, right? Or the other path we can go down, if we don't build our, our lives, our existence as a church on God's word and his truth, uh, then the power goes out of us. The effectiveness goes out of us, and we will dwindle, and we will close our doors. And there's case studies for congregations all over the place that are in these two places, some that have forsaken God's word and walked away from it, and now uh, they exist as something other than the body of Christ. 
And we see churches every week, every year, by the masses closing their doors for many different reasons, but in many cases, it's because they were not being faithful to God's mission. These are the paths that any church that forsakes the word of God can go down, and these are not paths that I'm willing to lead you down, um, and I pray that these are not paths that you want to go down either. 125 years is a long time to do ministry, but God's not done with us yet, and we want to keep going and continue to be faithful and living out the mission that God has called us to do here as Emmanuel. Now, our very existence, just on a foundational level, our very existence as God created us, as image bearers of God, our existence is intended to be lived from a place of rootedness in God's word. Our life source is God's truth. It is the word. It is Jesus Christ. It is relationship with him. We were made to thrive in God's word. We are not going to thrive in this world outside of it. We were made to thrive in his word. We were made to grow deep roots in the truth of the gospel and to use those roots to draw from all that we need for life here on this earth. Now, our psalm this morning captures the passion that I want to live with, that I want to experience, and that I hope we as a church can, can begin to view God's word with. Psalm 119.103 says this, How sweet are your words to my taste. Sweeter than honey to my mouth. Psalm 119.105, Your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. Psalm 119, 97 and 98. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Your commands are always with me and make me wiser than my enemies. That second part of that one's important as we look at Jesus' temptation in the wilderness and our temptation here on earth. May we taste the sweetness of God's word. Taste it. And the truth of Jesus Christ. May our paths in a dark world be lit with the light of Christ. That light's never going to fail or falter. It's not. May our minds be full of God's truth to sustain us, to give us wisdom, to make us wise when we are faced with lies or temptations in this world. And may our passion for God's word compel us, lead us to experience the coming kingdom of God here in our midst. Friends, next week we're going to continue this, um, but I want to pause here and pray for these things. Um, desiring God's word, I don't think is something that comes naturally to us, and I speak from experience. There's a million different things we can do with each moment of our day. Um, getting to know God's heart as revealed in the scriptures typically isn't one of those things that just naturally comes to our mind, and so I want to pray for us so that it um, it's something that becomes more apparent and central in our lives. So let's pray. Uh, Lord, we thank you. Um, we thank you, God, that we can read your truth, your word, as it has been preserved and passed down through the generations. We thank you, God, that you promise that it will work a transformation in our lives and in the world that we live in. We thank you, God, that you are good and that you have demonstrated your goodness by giving us life, by paying the cost of our sins through Jesus Christ on that cross. 
And now by inviting us to live this abundant, resurrected life with you in faith as we continue to do the work that Jesus has taught us to do. And Lord, we have all that in our hands. In dozens of translations, in hundreds of languages, Lord, you have provided your truth to us. So I pray, Lord, help us to use it well. Help us to make time for it. Help us to live lives that are firmly rooted in your truth. Not, not what the world has to offer, not uh, a shallowness of your word, not a verse here or a verse there, but the whole thing, God. We want all of you. We want all of you. So, Lord, would you bring it to our minds and bring it to our hearts daily, moment by moment. Remind us of your love for us. Remind us of this incredible gift that we have waiting to be opened each and every day as you desire to pour more of your heart into us so that we might experience abundant life, so that we might thrive as your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.